Welcome, everybody. We're in the uh, last chapters of the book of Genesis. Today we're in chapter 42. Um, as we had agreed, because it will still probably by Christmas break, we'll be done with Genesis or very close to it. And we agreed to start Exodus and we're just going to continue the uh, story <clears throat> that's so important to the, New Test uh, the Old Testament. Uh, but where we are now is in the narrative of Joseph. And um, as you know, uh, just to quickly summarize for a couple of you who haven't been here for a while, the uh, book of Genesis is uh, the foundation of our faith. I am always amazed at how many people have not studied the book of Genesis and therefore do not know what the Bible is all about. If you study and know the book of Genesis, you really know the framework for understanding the scriptures. So that's why we've been spending a lot of time on it. Joseph is now the number two person in Egypt. Uh, he entered Egypt in 1876 B.C. through the um, duplicity of his brothers, as you know, and now he is the second most powerful man in Egypt. And his brothers, because of the famine that is occurring in this whole area of the eastern Mediterranean, uh, his brothers have come down to purchase food, grain. And his, uh, for Joseph, immediately he knows who they are. They do not know who he is. And so what ch chapter 42 does, and there will be a series of these, Joseph is setting up tests for his brothers. And um, I think that's how we should understand this. At one, one place, the term is actually used, tested. But what is he testing now, that was rhetorical for you to think about it for a minute. Their motives? Their motives? Yeah, their character. Their character. He's really, and then that's a part of it, but he's really interested, have my brothers changed? Have they changed? Has God changed their hearts, or are they still the same brothers that sold me into slavery uh, and all of the, that you know is the history of Joseph? Because Joseph... Although he is now in an exalted position in Egypt, he has suffered greatly because of what his brothers had done. As you know, years in jail, and just it seemed like everything was going wrong. But that phrase that we've seen throughout the, this uh, narrative of Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph, is really the most important phrase to watch. And Joseph's response to it has been a commitment of faith and trust in God. So here, I, I didn't, I couldn't remember if we had gotten into the chapter or not. Sixteen, we've gotten sixteen. Sixteen? Yeah. Okay, so in verse sixteen, then uh, the test, in a sense, has already uh, been uh, set up, and in verse fifteen, um, by by this you will be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You should not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. And send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there's truth in you or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Now we're kind of jumping into the middle of this, but Joseph's charge to them, and it is a test, Joseph's charge to them as they've shown up in the court to buy food is your spies. Your spies from Canaan. And he used the language, we saw that in verse 9, the nakedness of the land. That's a euphemism. What that means is where we're vulnerable. The vulnerabilities of Egypt so you can attack us. Well, of course, they deny this. So Joseph says, look, the test is you, you must bring your youngest brother with you. Now, who's the youngest brother? Benjamin. Benjamin. And Joseph would not have ever known Benjamin. So it's, it's an extraordinary request. But then he puts them, as we just finished verse 17, he puts them in prison for three days. They are now, if we can put it this way, they're experiencing what Joseph experienced. <laughs> they're in prison, and he put them there. But it's not to chastise them, uh, really. It's really to test their character. So... Let's finish chapter 43, uh, 42. On the third day, third day of what? The third day they are in prison. Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, 
And remember, that's the test of their character. If your honest men let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, let the rest go, carry grain for the famine of your household, and bring your youngest brother to me. We stop there for just a minute. Now, um, that brother, you're going to find that out as we get down into verse 24, is Simeon. Simeon is the brother that will have to remain. Um, but did you notice something Joseph said? Fear God. He says, for I fear God. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to just step back and think about that for a minute, because that's a very common phrase all through the Bible. It's a worship word. It's a word of awe and devotion and allegiance to God. But this, from their perspective, this is an Egyptian saying this. They don't know it's Joseph. I mean, they don't know who he is yet. They don't know it's their, their long-lost brother. So it's an extraordinary statement. Do this and you will live, for I fear God. It's almost like he's saying, I fear God. You need to also. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a remarkable exchange. And the Bible's silent here. But you just have to, that's what I'm trying to get you to think about. You have to just sit back and try to process. Here are these sons of Jacob hearing this man in Egypt who's a powerful man. They're trying to get grain so they can survive. And they're having this incredible dialogue with him. And he says, do this and you shall live, for I fear God. The four there is causal, because I fear God. Yeah, Mark. When he, when, he, when he says, I fear God, isn't God at that time was exclusive to the people of God, which is the Jewish, and that's supposed to be telling to his brothers that he is one of them? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that you can conclude that yet. I mean, in terms of how he's wanting his brothers to conclude, I'm one of you. I don't think he wants them to conclude that yet. Uh, maybe, but I don't think so. Because it, he is not going to reveal himself, and they're not going to know who he is for quite a few chapters yet. So you've got to get to the end of the book of Genesis for them to have clarity on who this very powerful man is. But it, he's saying something to them that, as I've said now a couple of times, you try to process, how would they understand that? How would they understand what he is saying to them? Because if you're an Egyptian and you're speaking of God, there are multiple. Remember last week I explained the Egyptian worldview to you. They, the, the fundamental ethic of the Egyptian worldview in the ancient world was ma'at, a world of order, a world of stability, a world of predictability. And the primary job of Pharaoh was to maintain that. And so Joseph is in that dream that Pharaoh had, is saying, I know that's threatened, but listen, I'm giving you the counts of what you did do. Seven years of productivity, store up all, I mean, it's just, he's giving them that, and that's why the Pharaoh gives him this responsibility. So when they hear the word God, that is Joseph's brothers who don't know who he is, hear the word God, how are they processing that? Because to them, God is Yahweh Elohim. That's not how the Egyptians looked at God. Now, it's just, it's an interesting, it's an interesting part of the exchange. And yet there's no discussion about this. But he is zeroing in, and that's the key in verse 19, their honesty, their integrity, their character. Joseph is testing them. Have you guys really changed? Would he recognize, uh, would the brothers recognize the use of the singer God versus gods? Well, in the Egyptian worldview, if they spoke of God in the singular in this particular period in Egyptian history, because Egyptian history is long and it's very complicated when it comes to their theology, but it would have been Amun-Ra. That Amun-Ra is the chief of the pantheon. If they used a singular, that's whom they were speaking of, Amun-Ra. The God of huh? He was the god of gods. He was the god of gods. He was the head of the pantheon. Amun-Ra is two, it's two earlier gods, <laughs> Amun and Ra. Ra is the sun god. And they just combined them together. It doesn't matter to explain all that. So 
that's how they're probably thinking, well, he must be referring to the chief god of Egypt. There's, I mean, that's what I'm just, it's interesting to just process. How are they processing what he's saying? Because from their perspective, he's an Egyptian speaking. To them, Jews, sons of Jacob. Oh, anyway, I don't want to belabor this, but it's just, these are sometimes the things that we don't stop when we're reading scripture and really think about it. What really, how are they processing? What's the content of their understanding? Verse 21. So then they said to one another, the brothers saying to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. That's a remarkable confession. They are understanding what is happening to them as under the superintendence of God, and this is his justice at work. You follow me? They're, they're, they're not just pushing this aside. What Joseph wants to happen, he is seeing happening. Their conscience is awakened. The sensitivity to the justice and moral righteousness of God. They're remembering what they did to Joseph. They do not know this is Joseph. So it's what Joseph wanted to see happen. He's starting to see evidence of happening. And then verse 22, Reuben speaks. Now remember, Reuben is the firstborn son of Jacob. And back in chapter 37, you remember, I hope you remember, he tried to talk the brothers out of doing this to Joseph. Did Reuben speak? Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? Now there comes a reckoning for this blood. Now that's, again, to really understand what he is saying, you have to go back to chapter 9. Verse 6, when Noah and his family get off the ark, God establishes a principle of justice. If you willingly take the life of an image bearer, that blood is accountable to you. It's the origins of capital punishment. You lose your right to live. And so what Reuben is doing is he's bringing up that ethic, that ethical standard. We are accountable. I tried to talk you out of this, but you guys didn't listen. So it's, it's just this, this interchange between these brothers is focusing on God, his ethical standards, and his justice. Seems to me, though, that Joseph, either shrewdly or under God's guidance, kind of set up the context of family and brother by his conversation with them and probably that conversation piqued their conscience. Maybe they wouldn't have come to that conclusion if Joseph had not done it. Absolutely, and I I don't disagree with you at all. I think you're right. I think you're right. Now listen, I, I keep drawing you back to why is Joseph doing all this? He wants to see if his brothers have changed. Because if they haven't changed, then he 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 is not quite certain what he's gonna do. But he is not going to reveal without making clear who he is. And it's really interesting, that next verse. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there's an interpreter between them. So, I mean, up to that point, any conversation they'd had with Joseph was interpreting. Egyptian hieroglyphics, Hebrew, you know what I mean? So it's just, it's really, but Joseph is listening. He knows exactly what they're saying. And for Joseph, now look at verse 24. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. Here you see the compassion of Joseph. Here you see the, in a very real sense, the mercy and empathy of Joseph. And it's, Joseph is seeing, as Jim's words were, it is picking the conscience of his brothers, and that's what he wants to see. Yeah, uh, yeah. When they say, it seems like they have been suffering all those years and did not forget about 
their sin against Joseph, but also they, it seems like they, th- they thought that he's dead because they say... Absolutely. They, they, blood. they so made they, the inf- they've made the inference that he's dead. That's right. No, that's exactly right. That's what I mean. When Reuben speaks that way, he is appealing to the ethical standard that God has established. He's dead. Our his blood is upon us. We're accountable for this. So I mean, it's just there's a lot of stuff intersecting here. That if you don't recall all that's been happening in the Book of Genesis, it maybe doesn't quite drive home the real power of what is really going on in this particular part of Scripture. This is sort of a prelude to the statement of the Scripture that says, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Uh, Because we go through our lives and and people say, what what do you mean sin? What what are you talking about? And then comes judgment. Uh, And then the statement, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. So is that emblazoned or embedded in the conscience of all men uh, regardless of uh, their claim of innocence? There's a lot in your question, but, um, well, I do believe, and the scriptures have multiple references for this, that God places in our heart an innate sense of right and wrong. And that innate, you want to call it conscience, which is what Paul calls it in Romans 2, that innate sense of right and wrong is enough that as we reject that and harden our heart against it, we are accountable before God because we are rejecting a revelation that God has given to us. And therefore, God has every right as one of the categories he will use to hold humans accountable, to therefore judge them. And so you will either, and this is not an original thought to me, but you're alluding to Philippians 2, you will either bow to Jesus out of love and adoration, or you will bow to Jesus as your judge. There are only two alternatives. There are no other alternatives. Now, as we continue into the narrative, and he took Simeon, I'm in the middle of verse 24, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. That takes you up to verse 18, uh, verse 19. The brother who will stay behind as they head back to Canaan to take the food back to jo- uh, Jacob and so on is Simeon and bounds him. So, I mean, he puts him in prison. In verse 25, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain. They had bought the grain to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Another test. So, I mean, you understand what Joseph has ordered his servants to do. They bought grain, put the grain in their sack. They bought the grain. But I also want you to put the money that they used to pay for the grain in their sacks as well. It's a test. It's like, now this is an exact analogy at all, but it's like you buy something at the store and the clerk gives you $10 more in change than you deserve. What are you going to do with that? Struggle with it. Give it back. I one, ha- I one time had, this is a I I teach ethics and there's a case study. I give the students, it's like that. And the one student said, well, that guy had been praying that God would give him some extra money, so this is how God is doing it. And I thought, no, no, that's a terrible conclusion. Oh, so it's a test of their integrity and a test of the, how are they going to respond to this. Then verse 26, Then they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder to give him something to eat, He saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And as their hearts failed them, they then turned trembling to one another. Why? What is this that God has done to us? A conviction of their guilt. A conviction of the sensitizing of their conscience. Let's move. Yes, Joel. I just, that, that last phrase really troubles me. And you hear people say it even today, like, you know, 
why is God doing this? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like in this case they're kind of like blaming God. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what they're doing. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's again going back to their previous actions. Yeah, yeah. And stuff. Right? Um, I, I, like I said, I, I hear people say that oh, even sure. today. Mm-hmm. Why would God do this? Mm-hmm. Why would God, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, it's kind of a. Joe, what is the right word to use then? I don't know. Because, I mean, yeah. When, um, when something like this, something calamitous in your life happens, and we say, um, why did God do this to me? And it's something evil. I mean, it, it's really evil. It's morally, ethically evil. What does the Bible say? God does not say. God is not the author of evil. God does not cause evil. Therefore, God is contingent upon evil. Sure you don't want to say that, do you? Please don't, please don't agree with that sentence, because you don't want to say that. If God is truly sovereign, then we choose a verb like God allows evil. He allowed this to happen. He permitted this to happen for some greater purpose that sometimes we know Sometimes we don't. Um, Does God have the power and authority to take something evil and bring good out of it? What's the greatest example of that? The The cross. The cross is the greatest example of that. There's no way you can conclude that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the cross was an ethically right, just thing to do. It was horrendous evil. The most innocent person ever was crucified on a cross. A dastardly act involving a conspiracy, involving all kind of duplicitous acts on the parts of the Pharisees and Roman government and Pilate. Did God bring good out of that? Absolutely. He brought the opportunity for the human race to be redeemed through the act that was monstrously evil. That's what, that's what Peter says in his Acts 2 sermon, his, his Pentecost sermon. And see, that's part, of, that's part of where for you and me, we'll say, okay, God did not cause this, but God permitted this. You know, Jim's first wife died of, of cancer. God didn't cause that. But you have to conclude that God permitted that. Not, for, why? I, I don't know if we know that. I don't know if we can possibly figure that out. My pastor, you know, I'm on staff at a church plant. My pastor, I always do two sermon uh, series uh, in the year, and I'm doing another one in January and February. But he said, I want you to do a sermon series on helping people, helping people to have a framework to think through the chaos and terrible things that are going on in the world. And part of it, you know, we just went through a presidential election. There's a lot of uncertainty about, you know, the future of the United States and just everything else. But so I said, to, I thought about that for a while, and I came back to Matt, and I said, I'm going to do this sermon series on Habakkuk. Now, you all are familiar with Habakkuk, aren't you? He's one of the minor prophets. It's only three chapters. But it really hits at what I think you and I must understand about our world. It doesn't matter what you, but you can start studying the terrible, terrible situation in Syria. And you can just say, what, what is going on there? Thousands of people are dying. It's somewhere close to now 3 million refugees have been created. What's going on if you follow it? Well, what's going on in Aleppo is absolutely barbaric. It's one of the most barbaric things that's happened since World War II. And nobody's doing anything. And so Habakkuk looks at something like that and says, God, where are you? He looks at the immorality and the corruption of Judah. It's about 605 B.C. And he says, God, where are you? These are your people. You're not doing anything. Where is your justice? And God responds to his question. I am doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians to discipline Judah. And you remember what Habakkuk says? Hold it. Wait a minute. They're more unjust and evil than we are. And you're going to use them to discipline us? He says, yes. 
And then when they're done, I am going to discipline and judge them. And there's a crucial, crucial passage in the book. It's in chapter 2 of Habakkuk where he says, listen, I'm really paraphrasing. You're never going to figure this out, Habakkuk. You don't have the big picture. You don't have the eternal perspective on things. But those who are just live by faith. Don't try to figure everything out because you can't. You will not have the perspective I have. You'll never figure everything out. So trust me. Walk with me. The just walk and live by faith. That's a great message for 2016, soon to be 2017. Don't try to figure everything out. You don't have God's perspective. You don't have the eternal perspective that God has, where he sees how everything fits together through all of time. God's not confined to space and time like you and I are. He's above space and time. That's a great perspective to have for life. I wish I could tell you every day I have that perspective. I don't. God keeps driving me back to what we're studying right here. These guys who are under conviction are reaching the conclusion God is at work. They're reaching some wrong conclusions, but they're very aware God's in this. And Joseph is their brother, whom they think has been dead, and he is testing them. Have my brothers really changed? Now, what do you think, by the way? Is that a good thing for Joseph to do? Is that the right thing for Joseph to do? Why didn't he just say, oh, you, you know, my brother's here, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm Joseph, I'm still alive, come on in, we'll have a good time, get together again. Yep, let's go down to Starbucks and have a cup of coffee together. <laughs> Maybe he's looking at the, the long term, you know, as far as bringing his family down there and where they're going to multiply and everything. Uh, but he doesn't want to do that if they're, no longer trustworthy. Is, jo- is Joseph aware of the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Of course he is. Is he aware that he is a part of that family that is going to be a part of the fulfillment and blessings of those promises? Sure he is. So I think Joseph has a perspective on this that we sometimes forget. He has God's perspective on this. He really does. I don't mean the eternal, but he knows the promise. And the sense you get from these guys, his brothers, is they don't necessarily have that promise in the forefront of their thinking. Joseph wants to make sure that they truly, truly understand who God is, God's sovereignty, and God's care, and that God needs to transform them like he's transformed Joseph. And so he is testing his brothers. I think it's a magnificent demonstration of what true servant leadership should be like. Always thinking of the others to bring them further along to maturity. And Joseph Joseph is using these circumstances to test and mature and grow and develop his brothers. And one of the neat things at the end of this, it's several chapters, is how Judah starts to step up. And Judah, don't forget, as we will learn when Jacob blesses, the scepter will never depart from because the line of Judah, who will come from the line of Judah? David and Jesus. So I'm just, the, the character traits and the if I can use that word, the destinies of these brothers is at stake here. And Joseph, if I can maybe put it this way, is allowing himself to be used of God to grow these guys, which is a good thing. So these tests are really based upon his love and his desire for his brothers. Absolutely. We saw he wept. And he, they didn't think he understood what he, they were saying. He understood it, because obviously he's, he's from their family. And he's weeping, because he's just, it, it breaks his, yeah, I bet. There's a greater goal here, so I'm not going to tell him who I am yet. All right, let's move on. Now verse 29, the brothers 
have gotten this. They only know one of the brothers has extra money. We'll find that out in a little bit. So now they're back in Canaan, verse 29. They took hold of all that happened, saying, And the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us. I love that, spoke roughly to us. And took us to be spies of the land. But we said, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, i.e. Joseph. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Verse 33, Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take the grain for the famine of your household. Go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. Okay, now that's just a summary of what happened. Now verse 35, As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Now, by the way, that's, that's mild. In the Hebrew, I mean, it's, they were afraid, afraid, afraid. It's intense. It's a superlative. They were really afraid. I mean, because what's the charge? You got your grain, you stole the money. You criminals, you're not honest men. That's, that's what they're thinking. That's what he's going to conclude. Jacob, their father, said to them, verse 36, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Why did he say Simeon is no more? Sure, he's going to die. Cause, well, because Simeon's back in jail in Egypt, right? So he said, now you take Simeon too from me. I'm yelling and preaching. But anyway, now you would take Benjamin? All of this has come against me. This is Jacob lamenting his situation. Verse 37, then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Who's, who's the him? Benjamin. 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 But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you. Jacob refuses. Jacob refuses. He will not let Benjamin go with the boys. For his brother's dead, i.e. Joseph, that's what they assumed, and he's the only one left. Now, don't forget, Joseph and Benjamin are the only two boys to Rachel whom he really, really loved. And so, I mean, now, you know, Jacob is older, you know, he's fairly near the end of his life, and he's just losing his boys. And it's just, it's a very difficult thing. So he's not going to do if harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to Sheol, to the grave. Sheol is the grave to death. All right, now, presumably there's a little bit of a time span between chapter 42 and chapter 43. How long? I mean, it's certainly not years and years, but probably months. Things are not better. And the chapter opened, now the famine was severe in the land, meaning things are not getting better, they're getting worse. And that's why the need now is they've got to get more food. And where is the only place to buy food in the eastern Mediterranean at this time? Egypt. There's no other place to go. You either starve or you go down to Egypt and buy grain. So that's important for the introduction of chapter 43 because things are very severe. And so Jacob is going to have to do something. He's the head of the clan. He's going to have to agree to something. Is he going to let Benjamin go? And here's where you see Judah. Judah steps up and assumes some leadership here, which is kind of important. All right, now, are you with me? Any questions? Remember, the overarching point of these chapters is Joseph testing his brothers. All right, verse 2. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, the father said to them, Go again, buy still little food. But Judah said, The man, referring, of course, Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph, but the, the leader in Egypt solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. 
If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with me. So, I mean, Judah is laying it on the line. Dad, you can send us down to Egypt. But if Benjamin doesn't go with us, he'll never sell us grain. So, I mean, Judah's just saying, Dad, this is categorically the issue. You have to either let Benjamin go with us, or we're not going down. Verse 6, Israel said, who's that? Why Israel? Now, obviously. He was a patriarch. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, why, why use the proper name Israel here? Yeah, because, okay, it takes you back to Genesis 32, where God broke uh, Jacob of, remember that? Of his manipulative, conniving ways and gave him that new covenant name. So now Moses is using the covenant name, Israel, the one who contends and fights with God said. The one who resists and battles God always said. The one who is the paradigm of how all of the descendants will always deal with God. They'll push back, resist, and fight with God. So it's just to remind us, who is it that is the head of the clan? Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Why did you even tell him? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your other brother down? They're defending themselves, but they're accurate. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. We will go, we will rise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Verse 9, now go, notice again, Judah is asserting leadership here. Verse 8, I will make, be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not him, bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would not have returned twice. Then their father said, Israel said to them, If it must be so. Now I want you to notice, Jacob is now convinced by Judah. And Jacob, or Israel, lays out three lavish gifts for the head of Egypt. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry the present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Two, take double the money with you. Carry back the money that was returned in the mouth of the sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And then thirdly, take also your brother, i.e. Benjamin, and go again to the man. Verse 19. This is wonderful. It really is. May God Almighty. God Almighty is El Shaddai. Jacob is using, it's Hebrew obviously, El is a Hebrew name for God, Shaddai, Almighty. El Shaddai focuses on the power and strength of God. <coughs> Yahweh focuses on the being of God, the self-sufficient, self-existent one. Elohim focuses on the creative power of God. That's chapter 1 of Genesis. El Shaddai focuses on his power and his strength. May El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man. Two key words there. El Shaddai, title, mercy, a character trait of God. <clears throat> we don't deserve this. We haven't earned this. We haven't merited it. 
But may God, the power, the God of power, the God of strength, cause that man to show mercy to us. You see a change in Jacob here. This is not the Jacob of chapter 28. This is the Jacob of 32. He's broken. And he's back again to recognizing his dependence on God. Only God can get us out of this situation. So may El Shaddai evidence his mercy before the man. May he send back with you other, your other brother, i.e. Simeon, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. If that's God's plan, that I'm to lose my family, then I'll accept that. Here's Jacob, here's Israel, now dependent, broken. That's where God wants him. It's just, it's a very revealing verse. I hope you get the, the, get the real thrust of what's going on in that verse. It's really quite remarkable. Jacob is a changed man. He really is. So if circumstances are breaking us down as individual men in, at a juncture in our life or a time spirit, a period in our lives, using this as an example, knowing that we are believers, that God may be allowing this to happen to draw us closer to him. Mm -hmm. Is that what we're saying here in this illustration. Applicationally, that is exactly what we're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, in a way, he thinks everything is going against him, and mm -hmm. God is going against him. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, this is his son that he has mm -hmm. been waiting for years. That's right. God that his dad is That's right. Son. So it's like all of us try sometimes mm -hmm. to struggle with the circumstances, but at the end, God has this. And he's going to deliver. Jacob just has no idea what really is going on. Just like Habakkuk had no idea what was going on. Just like you and I have no idea what's going on. I mean, in terms of the big picture thing. We really don't. We read all the newspapers and, you know, listen to the president-elect speak, and we think everything's in control or everything's fine. Or I'm making all that up. But it's just the reality is... Um, the only proper response for you and me is to implicit trust in God. That ultimately, God has my best interests at heart, and ultimately, he is accomplishing eternally significant things in my life. Because, sir, many of you, and I don't know where you all are in specific areas of your life, but I think of Jim number of years ago um, when his wife was sick and, and, and passed away. That would have been very, very hard to still be able to say, I trust in God implicitly, that I don't have some doubts. I don't, but, Lord, why are you letting this happen? And all those things, natural, natural, understandable responses. And God is just saying, I know, you're not going to understand this if I try to explain it to you right now. Would you just trust me? Just trust me. Please just trust me. And that's the hard thing. Um, we just went through, in, uh, uh, using Genesis in the, in the morning Bible class in uh, 6.30, and we just finished chapter 14, where Sarai tells Abram, take things into your own hands and sleep with Hagar. Sleep, sleep with Hagar. And that's how God will fulfill the promise. And Abram, not exerting his spiritual leadership in the home at all, agrees to do it. And so the takeaway from that chapter is trust God and wait patiently for his promises to be fulfilled. Because if you don't wait patiently, you're going to mess things up. And the origin of the Arab-Israeli conflict is in chapter 14. I mean, the profound consequences of what Abraham did there in not exerting the spiritual leadership he should have. So here's Jacob, and that's what I really wanted to stress with verse uh, 14. Jacob, you see evidence there. Jacob is a changed man. He really is. And as Mark correctly said, he does not know the incredible blessing that waits him. He's soon going to be reunited with Joseph, whom he thought was dead. Verse 15. 
So the men took this present, this, the, the, the almonds and all that stuff, and took the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. We're about to see test number three. This will be a test of jealousy. Are my brothers, because they were very jealous, remember they were very jealous of Joseph. The coat of many collars, remember that? So now Joseph is going to step another test. It's really quite remarkable. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said it's because of the money. They believe Joseph is setting a trap for them, that this ruler of Egypt is setting a trap for them. So they think, this is, what, this is hilarious. It's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in. So he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house, spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down for the first time to buy food. And when they came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack, our money in full weight. So we had brought it again with us and we brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not... We do not know who put our money in our sacks. We're ready to make restitution. Now, they're saying this to Joseph's servant. Whatever it takes, we're ready to make restitution. I love the response of the servant in verse 23. Peace to you. (laughs) Do not be afraid. Look at this. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. That's an extraordinary statement of this servant. He's he's the servant of whom? Do you think Joseph may have taught him some things? Joseph may have explained some. I mean, this is a remarkable, this is a remarkable statement of a servant of an Egyptian power broker. Peace to you. That's the Hebrew greeting, shalom. Peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your fathers, put the treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. They brought Simeon out to him. And when the men had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and washed their feet, the normal things of hospitality, given the donkey's fodder, they prepared the present, back to verse 11, verse 12, those presents, for Joseph coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had had with them. And bowed him, uh, bowed down to him uh, to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, "Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke is he still alive?" Then they said, verse twenty-eight, "Your servant, our father's well. He's still alive." And they bowed their heads and prostrated, prostrated themselves. What does that mean? Kind of lying flat. But remember, they perceived Joseph as royalty, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph is saying that to Benjamin. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Second time, Joseph. Then he washed his face, came out. Controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself and them by themselves. It, this is an important point simply because Egyptian royalty never ate with commoners. Why is Joseph doing that? He's still carrying on the ruse. He's not going to reveal himself yet. He wants to put his brothers through So he's carrying on the ruse. Egyptian royalty never eats with commoners. So they're both eating, but they're in separate places. A continuing. And the Egyptians who ate with him hid by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat down before him. 
This is interesting. The firstborn according to his birthright to the youngest according to his youth. So what is the seeding order? The oldest to the youngest. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. So what's the test? Jealousy. Jealousy. Naturally, the other brothers said, wait a minute, Benjamin's got five times more than I had. His peanut butter ice cream serving is five times larger than mine. Any evidence of that? Notice what the passage says. And they drank and were merry with him. Some translations have became intoxicated with him. Any jealousy? Any evidence of personal envy? No. Did the brothers pass the third test? Yes. Joseph has one more test, which is what chapter 44 is all about. So why did Joseph do this? Because remember, what was evident back when they sold him to the Ishmaelites was they were jealous of Joseph. So now Joseph is saying, is that character flaw still present in my brothers? Answer, no. Joseph, it's just, this is, I think, one of the most um, profound passages as a narrative in the scriptures. This man, Joseph, is testing his brothers. Are they changed men or not? And so far, they've passed the test. There's one more test. Any questions, comments with me? This isn't hard, but I just want to make sure you get the point of what... This seems like a, a good passage to think about the times that we're coming together with our family members, and if we've held a grudge or we've had, you know, something against them that, that uh, we ask for God's strength to love them as God loves them not as we have historically related to them necessarily, if in fact it hasn't been um, showing God's love. I think that's true. Um, I don't know if you would agree with me on this, but um, I think often the greatest test of our compassion and love is in our family. Family gatherings. Uncles and aunts and people you don't see very, and people often that you don't always like a lot. Just, you know, just some people in the family, you know, and particularly when, you know, your children get married and and they, you know, bring into the family gathering people that, you know, they can grow up with and, you know, all... It's really interesting. And then uh, Joanna, they were with us on Thanksgiving, and she said, you know, Dad, I'm really glad that Greg and I don't have our children yet because Greg's brother has two children, and they are, from what Joanna says, the most competitive people in the world. So she just thinks it's really good so that there's no competition among the kids. So, you know, that's really true, isn't it? You know, because obviously your children are the most gifted and best-looking and, and most talented kids on planet Earth. And when you get brothers and sisters who have kids, too, you're always naturally just look down on those kids because they're not as good as your kids. You don't know what I'm talking about. It's just a conceptual <laughs> abstract idea. And that creates tension. Interpersonal relationship issues among families where there is jealousy. There's often interpersonal relationship breakdowns. And then I had one of the guys, one of my other Bible studies, he, he said, I really want you to pray about this. Because we're having Thanksgiving meal, and he said half of my family voted for Clinton, and half of my family voted for Trump. And he said, I do not know what Thanksgiving's going to be like. He said, I just, he said, I'm really, really concerned about this. He came, this morning, he, he had, he always had a little prayer sheet there, and he just wrote, he said, God answered prayer. He said, it didn't even come up. And he said, I can't believe it didn't come up. Because every time we get together, it always came up. And because now the election's over, you know, there's just bitter feelings. 
So it's just really fascinating because family, family issues are the most difficult issues to deal with often. When you're in the workplace, you only you know, see the people, but that's it. You go home. But when you leave your workplace, you go home to the family, and that's the issue. So it's just, that's what's going on here with Joseph. And what Joseph is trying to see, have my brothers really changed? And he's seeing, yes, they have. Now, the last chapter, which we'll only get started on, the last chapter is the final test. But I hope they passed the jealousy test because they ate his food and they drank his drink, so they enjoyed the blessings. Well, well, yeah, but I mean, because Benjamin got five times more, you know, naturally, you know, 40 years ago, that probably would have brought a different reaction among the brothers. But here, there's none. It, it's not an issue. They're, they're happy, they're joyful, and so on. Now, we're almost out of time. Let me set you up for chapter 44. We'll get into that. I'll tell you the big picture. What happens is he sends them back, but in Benjamin's sack, he has his servant place his personal silver cup. Got it? Because now the test is, what in the world is going to happen when they find out Benjamin has the silver cup of this powerful Egyptian man? What's the conclusion? Benjamin stole it. Now what are we going to do? So next week we'll deal with how this test unfolds. And what is Joseph really after? What's he trying to get at? What, what does he want to see in his brothers with this very unusual test? And it's going to affect Jacob, too. And then the rest of the chapter, is, or the rest of the book, is about how it unfolds. They start to understand who Joseph is. And then there's this great reconciliation and so on. And there's a blessing that Jacob will give to his boys in chapter 49. We're going to spend some time on that. So. Jim, can we continue to pray for uh, Joseph's dad? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Those of you who don't, uh, if you were not here a couple weeks ago, Joe was drawn out of the class, in the middle of the class. His father was uh, very sick, and he's been diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, and your dad's in his 80s, isn't he? 88. 88, okay. So that's unusual often, uh, but we want to pray for him. It's, it's very difficult. So, Lord, we're grateful for the time of uh, study in this, in, in one sense, very familiar narrative, the story of Joseph. But uh, we're trying to approach it from uh, a little bit of a different perspective. These tests that Joseph is setting up for his brothers to really see if they've genuinely changed. And Lord, we also saw that little window into what's happened in Jacob's life. Jacob is a changed man. He, he really is. Um, that, that manipulative, controlling, conniving character trait, uh, it's not there anymore. And so, Lord, we're thankful for that. It just evidences again that every one of us is in the process of transformation. You're transforming every one of us. That's what sanctification is all about, that process of being conformed to the image of Christ. That involves character. It involves attitudes. It involves motives. It involves what we do as well as what we say. So we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you give us day after day, week after week, month after month, the opportunity to walk with you in loving obedience, to clench our hands tightly in yours and allow you to take us through the difficulties of life. And we often don't understand everything that's going on. We certainly do not always get all of our questions answered. But you keep saying lovingly to us as our Heavenly Father, trust me, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will always be with you. And that we hang on to, because often we do not understand everything that's happening to us, let alone what's happening in the larger context of the whole world. But you are a God who loves us and cares for us, and always, ultimately, from the perspective of eternity, has our best interests at heart. Help us to trust you with that. We do pray for Joe's dad. This is, I'm sure, a devastating development in his life for him and for the family. Give grace there, give comfort there, give enablement there, and and give wisdom to the medical people as they try to determine what they can do in this rather rare development in a man of his age. 
So we have to commit that to you, what we've just been studying, that even in something like this, Lord, you can bring something eternally significant and good out of it, and we ask you to do that. So we go our separate ways now. Dismiss us with your blessing. Help us in both what we do and what we say to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen.